Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Happy Monday, everyone. This is your host, Laura Carfing. I am so happy to have you here for yet another week of Breast Cancer Conversations. If you're returning listening to us, I'm so glad you're here. And if this is your first time, a huge welcome to you. Breast Cancer Conversations, as you heard earlier, is part of survivingbreastcancer.org, and I have just a quick couple shout-outs to put out there for you so you are aware of all of the amazing programming that we put on week to week. Every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, you're invited to join our Thursday Night Thrivers group, and it is way more than just a support group. We hang out, chill, have conversations, and have a lot of fun. We also host an every other Sunday NBC series as well. So all of this information can be found on our website and is absolutely free to sign up and we hope to see you there. All right. So back to this episode. This episode is actually a recording from one of our every other Sunday NBC series. We have a great conversation with Susanna Barkataki. Susanna is an Indian yoga professional, yoga practitioner, and founder of the Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute. She is a certified yoga therapist and author of the best-selling book, Embrace Yoga Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. We'll kick things off today with a grounding meditation, which lays the foundation for our discussion on engaging in yoga practice that is accessible, inclusive, equitable, and honoring the rich yoga tradition and heritage. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a real honor to be here and to be with an old friend and meet new friends and folks who um, who are listening in. So we'll do a drop-in. I like to think of drop-ins as a way to just kind of come into a collective shared energy. If it's helpful to think of it as a meditation, that's great. If it doesn't work for you, that's great. You can think of it as something else. There's no one way to do this. So maybe you want to lie down. Maybe you want to lean back against a wall or a chair. Maybe you want to have your eyes open and gazing at a spot in front of you. Um, Maybe you want your eyes to be closed. So different choices and see what feels okay for you in this moment. And I will invite a bell. So this is a bell that I'll invite three times and we can listen to the sound of the bell and then I'll guide a little bit with my voice. Breathing in, I'm aware that I am breathing in. Breathing out, I'm aware that I am breathing out. In, out. 
If you would like to do this in this moment, I invite you to scan and notice any part of your body or mind emotions that feels a sense of ease or sukha. Sukha means ease. And it may be very few places, but perhaps it's in your pinky or an elbow or the corner of the foot. And focus your awareness on that sukha, on that ease. If it feels okay for you, you can see what it might feel like to expand that feeling of ease beyond that area. One of my yoga teachers says, as long as one finger wiggles, it's enough to practice. And even if no fingers wiggle, we can still practice. So as we sit and breathe, becoming aware of the part of you that is aware. So the part of your consciousness that's aware of you being aware of your focus on the breath. This part that is described as universal as pervading in the texts. This part of us is described as not being able to be wetted or burned, not being able to be changed. But the part of us that's eternal, and maybe there's a glimpse of that conscious experience or what might it like be like to be aware of it can hold that and we'll take a few more breaths in silence now you hear the bell slowly coming back into the shared space before we look at the screen if you're looking uh, look taking a moment to look around you noticing form and color not worrying if you know the laundry needs to be folded or if your room is clean or not it doesn't matter but just taking in shape is a way that orienting ourselves in space can feel 
grounding and supportive. And then we'll come back to this shared circle. Thank you, Susanna, for guiding us through that. Whenever I talk to people about yoga now, I, I remind myself that I'm talking to uh, probably people who thought as I did prior to this experience with cancer, that it seemed pretty hokey and out there and it wasn't very objective, right? It, it's all about feelings and, and things like that. And so if any of you are thinking that that way today, um, you know, I want to make sure that you know that we're we're including you in this space. It's this is not just for people who think yoga is amazing. This is also for people who think yoga might be a little hokey, a little out there, um, and thinking about connecting to energy or the universal energy or to what is divine or what is um, uh, going to live beyond us. Um, that those are all concepts that um, that are hard. They're, they're not easy and they're not easy to connect to. So I just want to give um, that, I don't know if that's a disclaimer or uh, just for, for everybody here today that we want to talk to everybody. It's not just the people who are already converts, but um, to everybody who thinks that yoga might not actually be for them. Um, so uh, Susanna, I'd, I'd love for you to talk about your background Um how did you come to this practice uh, of yoga and um, where, where are you now in the practice of yoga? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I came to yoga from suffering, right. From experience of suffering and from an experience of separation. I was born, my father is Indian. My mother is British. And I was born in the seventies at a time when, you know, People just didn't do that in, in England. There weren't really interracial couples. Um, my family was told, my parents were told, you'll have to adopt because you'll have half-breeds. And then when they went ahead and you know managed to find someone who would marry them and had children anyway, we were born, my brother and I, into a world that made it very clear that we weren't wanted. And so all of that, even though I was a child, all of that was going on and kind of went inside of me. And then we moved to the United States, which is why I sound like I sound of a British accent. Because we we're seeking to get away from some of that discrimination. But we ended up moving to Los Angeles area and to a particular suburb where there continued to be a lot of racial discrimination. So I grew up fighting, you know, and, and physically fighting on the outside but a lot of those insults and things went inside. And so I don't know if I think most people can relate to that feeling for different reasons of not belonging or feeling not good enough or feeling not um, like you're not truly welcome somewhere. People don't really see the full you or you don't even know who you fully are. So all of those things were happening for me and the thing that I went to or the tools that I went to, not really realizing it at first, where my father would teach me mindfulness or meditation or lead a guided meditation so I could fall asleep or deal with my anxiety. I was really shy, like painfully shy um, before doing something like a test or th things like that. And so initially it was, it was all of that that brought me to yoga. And then when I was in uh college, I was having anxiety attacks, like 
it's just a stressful time, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't, I couldn't quite figure out what to do, but I knew I had to do something. So I went to a yoga class and in that class was like just one of those YMCA classes with a wonderful gem of a teacher who didn't make us feel like we were not doing it right if we couldn't do all the poses, you know, and, um, and I remember feeling a connection between my mind and my body and my spirit and knowing, oh, there's something here that is helpful for me. But also I knew because it's a part of my ancestry and my history, I think it's going to help me with this like kind of full circle reconnecting back. So I began that path and um, I was also a teacher after that, after college, I became a high school teacher and love to learn and study. And so it just kind of naturally brought back what I was learning about yoga into my classroom and taught students and then ended up also writing about my experiences with yoga and discrimination and cultural issues, which turned into now, you know, that really like the book you held up, Abigail, it's like a book about yoga and social justice. I w- I just want to make that clear. <laughs> so no one's like, oh, I'm going to deepen my yoga practice without thinking that, yeah, you'll get yoga, but you'll also get a really hugely healthy dose of, um, of how can we practice in a way because the way I understand yoga and how it's been defined to me is it's it's a pathway of reducing suffering for us, each of us, but also in the world for our communities. And so it's not separate, like me finding ease and peace a little bit, even in difficult circumstances, isn't separate from me supporting and helping other people, supporting other people and finding that as well. I love how you talk about it being rooted in suffering. Uh, that that it, you came to it because of suffering, and and certainly for me, that's exactly what uh, that that that's what brought me to yoga. I think that when you're busy and you're building a career and you've got a family and you have all these things going on, I never felt like um, I never felt like I had the time to be still, right? And I, and I think that's such a big piece of our society that, that we're all moving at a hundred miles an hour, or maybe that's just me. Um, lots of people are moving at a hundred miles an hour. But the, the practice of learning how to be still um, is so important. And so, Susanna, if somebody comes to you and they say, you know, I, I'm laying in Shavasana or I'm told to sit in yoga and like scan my body and all I can think about are the 25 million things that um, I have to do today, what do you say to them? Yeah, I mean, it's so common, right? It's, it's ever since humans have started to meditate our minds have wandered ever since humans have begun this practice, we've been distracted. And so it's not so much like that you're doing it wrong. If your mind wanders, that's actually normal. It's more like, can you bring it back? Can you say whatever you choose the focus to be, whether it's like we did on the bell or a little bit on awareness of being aware, um, whatever you're focusing on, can you be like, Oh, I'm in my laundry list, you know, or I'm in my to-do list ah, hi, brain, or hi, thoughts, I see you, welcome back, right, gone again, oh, welcome back, (laughs) oh, welcome back, so, and I had a a teacher who said, because I remember asking this question, I was like, I'm so distracted, but then, like, I have these moments where, and it's totally unpredictable, where I'll just feel, like, complete liberation or peace or like aha or insight why like can you help me judge my meditation and and determine what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong 
And they were like, Susanna, don't, don't evaluate your meditation by this or that practice. Practice for 10 years, practice for, you know, some amount of time, and then we'll see where you're at. Like there's no, there's no end. There's no beginning and there's no end. There's just wherever you are. And, and that was really helpful for me because it made me see that, um, that I didn't need to be so kind of controlling of what the experience was. I could just let it be what it was. And I also do want to say for folks who are here wondering, like, why did we meditate and why are we talking about meditation when we're talking about yoga? Yoga actually is a whole path and system. One that really was there to guide people into being able to just be with their experience, whatever their experience is. It doesn't have that much historically to do with the physical practice. That's only been in the last couple hundred years and um, has eight limbs primarily, which are like ethics, yoga ethics, ways of living in the world and being with each other, being with ourselves, asana, which is the physical practice, pranayama, which is breath, working with breath. So even if we can't move our body um, or it doesn't feel comfortable to move our body, we can work with breath. Um, Pratyahara, which is focus. So like, for example, focusing on a a candle or focusing on cooking, if you're cooking or art or drawing or writing or reading. Um, Dharana, which is um, like mindfulness of whatever you're doing. Dhyana, which is meditation and samadhi, which is like liberation or bliss or joy. So all of that is yoga. And I really take a, a personal, like, I feel like it's kind of why I'm here in life is to help us expand our understanding of what yoga is beyond just the physical. And also make sure people know, like, you don't have to do any acrobatic kind of pose. You can, you can practice in whatever way feels like it brings sukha ease to your experience, your mind, body, spirit. Which is such a welcome thing for me because um, there's no way I can do all of the acrobatic poses. In fact, the only physical piece of yoga that I've been able to do is chair yoga because of all of the surgeries that I've had and all of that. And um, understanding that it that it's more than just, you know, can you do Uh, the warrior poses, or can you hold the warrior poses for as long as, you know, they're, they're suggesting that you can certainly there are physical benefits to those kinds of things, but that there's other pieces of it. Um, in, in the prelude to your book, you talk about yoga as a science of personal liberation and social justice. And you've talked a little bit about that. Um, would you explain a little bit more about those concepts? Yes, absolutely. So, um, but I also got excited to talk about something that you said about chair yoga. Oh, please go, go, go. I think about <laughs> like with warrior, I'm just, and for folks who are watching people who, who aren't watching, maybe you can't see, but for example, you can do warrior in a chair by moving, let's see if you can see my legs, by moving your legs to the side, if you wanted, right. But say you couldn't do that and you wanted to do warrior with your legs down and just lift one foot up and put it on a block. What the the beauty and the power of yoga is in the benefit of the, the shape in coming towards peace or power, regardless of what it looks like. So my warrior, your warrior, right? Laura's warrior, they can all look different, 
but what we share is the benefit of the of the shape, which we may find in different ways. So I, I wanted, and for me, that's a huge part when when we're talking about yoga as a science. It's a science that takes into that I believe we need to take into account the roots and kind of that organized system, but also the social justice piece is like who is it serving? So who are the people that that are in front of us? Like for me as a yoga teacher, or even me as a student, when I go to practice, I want to show up to a class where the teacher is going to teach me and my particular experience. Um, There's a whole branch and field that's developing called accessible yoga, ACC. Actually, I don't have spelled this correctly off. I have to look at it. I think it's A-C-C-E-S-S-I-B-L-E. I may have added to many S's, um, but accessible yoga. And the reason I bring that up is that movement is so helpful because it's like, regardless of our ability, disability status, regardless of body size or any experience yoga is for you yoga is for us and it can be accessed so I wanted to name that first which is where when I'm talking about that in the beginning of the book it's pointing at the eight limbs that I mentioned like that organized system that's there but that organized system doesn't exist in a vacuum it exists in a context of people and how we engage with the practice and so we have to I believe in a way we get to look at all of those beautiful um, tools that come vehicles for liberation that come from the tradition and then provide people ways in, in the world that we're in today. And what about the piece of um, social justice? Mm. You know, you're talking about access, right? And yeah. it, and it being something that can be accessed from all different directions and for all different people, but, but how is yoga a vehicle for social justice? Yes. So the very first and the last uh, of the eight limbs, the first is ahimsa in the yama, as I mentioned, the ethical practice. So ahimsa means non-harm or non-violence. And ahimsa is what Gandhi practiced when he helped overthrow the, you know, colonization of India by the British that influenced Martin Luther King that helped contribute to the civil rights movement. And John Lewis, who, um, so there's so many ways that yoga itself, right at the start, is about finding sovereignty, self-rule, meaning having the freedom and the space to say, like, this makes sense for me. And I believe in this, you know, I've taken into account and kind of gotten into conversation or had the ability to agree or disagree, but ultimately this is my truth. This is the way I'm going to live or the way I see things. And that Ahimsa is about creating that space of sovereignty for everyone, for each of us. But when we're committed to it and going deeper in a path of yoga practice, we're not just saying selfishly or self-absorbedly, this is my truth and I'm committing to my truth and I don't care about other people's. It's, oh, this thing or experience like systemic inequity is getting in the way of other people being able to express their truth. For example, if we take gender oppression, right? For women, patriarchy, or the wage gap, or the fact that, you know, we're like 
speaking as a mom myself, there's assumptions. Like when my partner, who's a man, takes care of uh, our son, it's like, oh, that's so sweet that he's taking care of your child so you can work. Or that he's literally, I've heard someone say that he's babysitting. I'm like, he's not babysitting. He's the dad. (laughs) So, So when we have these blocks to equity, freedom, full expression of ourselves, that part of a full yoga practice is working to clear away those blocks, not just for ourselves, but for others. And sometimes it takes, you know, for me, I just want to speak to, because I'm not, I want to be very transparent and say, um, I don't have the same experience of having a cancer diagnosis. And I have had either acute or even longer, like things that have happened in my life that have had me question um, or had me facing death. And when those things have happened for me, there's been a way that definitely I focus inwards and I'm super focused on my own experience. And then some of the time in some of those moments, because I've experienced these things more than just once, um, I'm able to open to compassion and empathy for other people who have suffered perhaps the way I have, or other people who are suffering maybe in a different way than me. Um, but that I, there's a, a way that the, kind of that permeability between what's me and not me softens. And that too is part of the practice of social justice is like when the suffering happens, because it's part of nature, it's part of life. That's one of the yogic understandings is do we use it to close and solidify around or are there times, are there ways, are there moments when we can soften and open and connect and use it to connect and also to, to work, to uplift one another. It's so beautiful to think in terms of taking your own suffering and taking something that has been difficult for you to be able to use that as a vehicle for understanding others' suffering. And you don't have to have the same exact experience to be able to say, okay, how did I feel in that situation? Now, how does that translate into how somebody else feels? Um, so I just I just think that's such a powerful idea. Um, thinking about the civil rights movement and and you ladies know and other people on on the call may know that my husband is black. And so, you know, I'm not in his skin. I don't have his experiences, but just the fact that, um, first of all, we love each other. I think that you're, to a certain extent, open to seeing things from another person's eyes. But I've often felt that the way that I've been treated differently as a woman, it's not the same being treated Mm -hmm. differently from a racial perspective, but being treated differently just because you, you walked in the room and you are who you are. Um, there are some of those things that, that translate across uh, different experiences. So I think that's um, such a powerful thing to remember. But then there's also a part of your book where you talk about um, this movement to embrace and not appropriate yoga. Um, so we talk a little bit more about that, especially for those of us who are white. We're not from India. We're walking into this practice saying, oh, wow, there's all these cool benefits but how do we get the benefits and enter into yoga without, without taking that away from the people who brought it to us? Yes, because in that 
context of social justice and in the context that we're in of yoga in the West, one of the issues that is important to care for is there are people because of the color of their skin, because of their accent, because of who they are culturally are actually um, sidelined or pushed out of being centered in yoga practice, which is not different than politics, you know, professional life. It's, it's the same everywhere, these same systems of oppression and um, privilege and power. So what I was hoping to do in the book is talk about those issues in a yogic context and yoga is specific. It's different, you know, living in the United States, a lot of times we have the conversation around race, particularly black, white, which is a really important conversation to have. And I very much support that conversation. And when we're talking about yoga, just the way we would be, if we were talking about say doing sweat lodges there, if we were talking about sweat lodges or, you know, using sage or other indigenous practices, we should be talking about indigenous Native American folks with yoga, which comes from India and South Asia and was codified and developed and practiced. And some people don't know this for thousands of years, right? So it was, it's not like just in a recent thing, Indus Valley civilization, Saraswati River Valley civilization, which were organized. This is where like, it's important to understand the scientific side, the, the civilizations that existed then you know, there were brick buildings, the the archaeological evidence that we have is they were cities and villages that were on grids, where there were health centers with big pools at the center and what looked like we don't know for sure, but what looked like treatment, treatment rooms, small treatment rooms around the outside. So there was a lot of advanced um, there, were, there were sewage systems, you know, a lot of advances in society. And so during that time, which about 2,500 to 3,500 years ago, a uh, long time ago, that is where yoga emerged. People both within those villages and cities and on the outskirts, people who were engaged in lay life, householder life, working, living, but also those who said, I'm going to go to the forest and sit in a cave and practice. Both were both kinds of practitioners we're developing this system that um, that then they taught and passed down from teacher to student, teacher to student for hundreds and then thousands of years. And it comes to us. And so it's important just the way, you know, that we would cite, like if I was writing a paper and I was using the words of Maya Angelou or I was using um, Leela Watson's words, these are different writers, thinkers, activists, I wouldn't just take their words and act like they were mine. I would cite my sources or cite the research if it was a scientific study. It's the same thing of not demoting this kind of knowledge stream or indigenous wisdom tradition to a point where we can take from it and not credit it, but elevating it to a place of this is a source of knowledge. Yoga is actually, I mean, it's ethical philosophy. And, um, and so pointing to those knowledge systems to acknowledge and honor them. And so cultural appropriation is at the most basic level, it's stealing. It's like going into someone else's place, taking their stuff and using it for your own benefit without giving them anything back or helping them. And so when we're talking about yoga, it's, it's like, don't just take, but give 
give respect, honor, appreciate where the practice comes from, which can be as simple as saying, you know, at the beginning, for me, often I'll say, I'm going to share a practice that comes from South Asia and um, we're going to do some meditation or some movement and we'll see what happens, right? So it's just acknowledging the, the where the practice comes from. And then caring for the culture by not um, mocking it or harming it, which means if you're going to go in and, and practice a little bit deeper, maybe developing a relationship with the culture that it comes from. So for example, learning that namaste is pronounced namaste, not namaste. And to make a pun or a joke like namaste in bed or, you know, those types of things is actually considered offensive to people from within the tradition. And so it doesn't, it's sort of like what we would do if we were forming a friendship, you know, you don't just like take the parts you want from your friend. Hopefully you get to know them. They're, they're soft spots, they're sensitive spots, they're tender spots and the things that bring them joy. It's the same thing with these practices. If they're not part of our own culture, to take the time and care to, um, to honor them, to respect them. And so I say that not to discourage anyone from going and practicing. I think you absolutely should go and practice yoga if it's supportive to you, if you feel like it will help you. Um, but know that, that you can do it with like a curiosity and an open-mindedness and a caring. As we talk about in the metastatic community, uh, language matters and labels matter and, and how you approach a group of people that you're not a part of, um, it matters and it, and it matters in a lot of ways. So thank you for that reminder um, that we're not just going into a yoga studio for the physical benefits, but we're actually entering into a different culture and we're actually entering into something that has been around for so long. And I think the idea of not just taking one of those eight limbs, but looking at all eight and, and how they affect you as a person, I think is, is very important. Um, but let's shift to the more uh, practical. Um, if you were talking with someone who experienced this, this disconnect or this um, betrayal of their body and was looking to reconnect with their bodies um, what would they look for? What would be, um, let's start first with like, um, looking for a yoga studio or a yoga guide for somebody who comes from this experience of having some physical limitations. Um, you know, I, I like to talk about the chemo being like, we've literally been pumping poison into our bodies for years. Um, where does, where does somebody start if they're looking at starting to explore yoga? Yeah. Um, I think like a true, wonderful, supportive yoga teacher and yoga space will welcome folks wherever they're at. And so that's really important to find a space where you feel like you can show up exhausted, where you can show up and maybe they have planned a flow class or whatever, you know, a balancing class and, and you can can be there online or in person. And they say things like, like I tried to demonstrate in the meditation at the beginning, if you'd like to take this laying down, if you'd like to lean against the wall, you know, um, where they say things like you can take this class lying down the entirety of the class where there's a real 
focus on bringing the autonomy back to that word, right? Yoga is about sovereignty. It's about autonomy back to you, that practitioner and where they, the teacher is making sure that you feel in charge of your experience and they're there to offer options and kind of guide, but always you get to be the one to determine where your practice goes. And, and so also that they're not using words that create a hierarchy. It's subtle, but saying things like for uh, the fullest experience of this pose, think of how that sounds, right? If I'm doing a practice and I'm doing it here and they're like, for the fullest extension of this pose, send your arms out, but I can't do that. I'm going to feel like, Ooh, I'm not doing the fullest. So that doesn't feel so good to me. And so I look for teachers who say one option is another option is without hierarchy. So teachers who cue without hierarchy, but also teachers who know enough to not just be like everyone who can't do this, go into balasana, into child's pose. Cause that's not helpful either. And, and I will say, I've been that teacher where I wasn't really sure how to cue when someone came with a specific um, situation or something that they were dealing with. And I think it's our responsibility as yoga teachers. So anyone's listening, it's like a yoga teacher to get the training to learn how to give options. And so just as an example for any shape, like for tree, um, which is a, a where you stand on one foot and use the other foot to balance, to be able to guide tree on your back against a wall, holding onto a chair or standing on the mat. Uh, So, and then to guide each shape in, guide us all into the shapes, talk about the benefit of tree, which is focus, connection to the earth, right? If I'm laying on the ground, if I'm against the wall, if I'm sitting, if I'm standing, and then, bring us out together. So there's a way that we're connecting as a community, regardless of how we're each practicing. So I look for, for teachers who do that, which again, doesn't mean our yoga teachers have to be perfect and not putting that on teachers either. Uh, there may be times where you're like, well, that teacher really messed that up for me. I didn't enjoy that, you know, but hopefully there's a relationship there where you can say, Hey, that just totally didn't work for me. Can you research some options? So, so next time, you know, we can, I can experience that with a little more ease. Um, those are the first things I would look for. I'm curious if you have any thoughts. So one thing that I always suggest to people is to set up a consultation with the mm-hmm. yoga teacher and come to the yoga teacher and say things like what I said. I've never done this before. I think it's a little hokey. Like, you know, teach me. Like, I'm open to understanding, but I'm starting out with this bias but also the physical limitations and why the physical limitations that I had, why they are have, um, why they are something that I think yoga would help with, um, cueing the teacher to, I'm going to need accommodations for X, Y, Z. Um, everybody in the yoga studio where I go knows that I like, I like my spot by the wall because I can't do tree pose very well. Uh, you know, I have a good leg and a bad leg. And so, you know, being able to stand next to the wall so I can grab the wall and, and not feel like I'm going to fall over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just find that coming to the, uh, the teacher in the beginning and just being honest about those things, um, it is something that really helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that that's, you know, not, not all the studios will do that. In fact, when I suggested that the studio that I went to was, was very surprised, <laughs> but I was just like, I have this really big story that I just need to sit down with somebody and explain, like, this is why I'm here. Mm. Um, but one thing that I've experienced too, in the practice of yoga and in reconnecting with a lot of those really intense feelings, um, you know, whether you want to call it the betrayal of our bodies or just how there, there's this stuff in our cells. I mean, I think our cells remember trauma, mm-hmm. um, you know, the trauma of the diagnosis, the trauma of, um, I was just explaining this to my um, massage therapist the other day that um, in the process of getting the medical care that we need, every single person who touches us hurts us from the the nurse that's jabbing us with with a needle to the people who force us to lay on these really hard tables and it hurts our back to the surgeons that are cutting us open to the people who are pumping the chemo into our bodies. Everything hurts. Mm. And, and, you know, again, I think our bodies remember that at a cellular level. And so I've found in the practice of yoga that there are times when I'm just sobbing. As I'm connecting to those pieces of my body that were harmed, that were affected um, by cancer and by the treatment, that it just is this wave of of emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, have you worked with people, Susanna, that have had those reactions in that time of connection to their bodies? I mean, that's so common because I you're you're so right. And more and more we're we know now that trauma does live in our bodies and epigenetically, even from our ancestors, seven generations back. And so that means for many of us, given the stories of our families, uh, we likely are holding a lot from the past that may not even be ours. And so uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about another really important quality I look for, which is a yoga teacher or yoga space that won't uh, spiritually bypass. So meaning that won't just bypass suffering. Like if I see a studio that has a sign, uh, good vibes only, I just walk on by (laughs) because I know given my life experience and the level of trauma that I've experienced, even in this lifetime, like let alone the past, that's not going to fly that often in a, in a yoga class, I cry or I, one of my favorite cues, Jessamine Stanley, who's a body positive, um, self-proclaimed fat, black, queer yoga teacher, uh, who teaches online and, um, and has a place called underbelly yoga, I think. And, and so she cues, she'll say, if you need to scream, if you need to fart, if you need to sigh, it's all welcome. And that is so liberating because our bodies don't like, they're not rational. Our minds may have like, oh, it's not polite to fart or it's not polite to burp or it's not okay to cry, but our bodies just wherever they are, they're going to move that out and process it through. And we can either hold on or let it go or let it flow and come and go. So absolutely having uh, more of that training and in, in, in the yoga world, it's called trauma-informed yoga. So for, I look for spaces that are accessible, trauma-informed, and personally, I also look for culturally informed, meaning where they're not going to be like racial microaggressions. So, um, so I know as a person of color, I can walk into that space and 
um, hopefully that there will be care for all of these things. So trauma-informed yoga, which, which actually where teachers who have trauma-informed training, they've learned about, they should have learned about the neuroscience of, and the um, biology, the physical biology of stress and of trauma, and also about the efficacy, the helpfulness of yoga in addressing, um, not changing, right? Because like, for example, I'm mostly blind. So I have a, I'm partially blind in one eye. I've been that way since birth. Like nothing's going to change that. Um, that's not something that someone can give me a bunch of yoga practices to, to take away or to ever, ever alter. Um, but my relationship to that experience can change. And so a teacher can give me practices, maybe a drishti, which is like a physical, like a focus. I'm looking at my finger for those who are listening, not watching and gazing at my fingertip and then moving it out to the side and then up and around. And so there can be practices that help that do have benefits regardless of the, the betrayals or the malfunctionings or the different, you know, functions, however we experience it or however we, we um, conceive of it in our own lived body, mind, spirit complex, um, there can be practices that support us. And so I also think the best teachers and the best spaces they don't, um, they don't try to fix me or you, they don't try to like pity or, um, or kind of top down, tell us like what to do or that we're going to be cured. It's going to be better, but they just are like, Hey, this is something that might help. Like kind of having a curious questioning and inquiry. How did that feel in your body? How did that feel in your experience? And where if I cry or if you cry, it's not, they are not jumping over with tissues and worrying, but they're just like holding the space for that experience. It's so key. Um, One of the yoga teachers at the yoga studio I go to uh, spend some extra time understanding how the different yoga poses can help somebody um, with cancer. And uh, one of the my favorite things that I tell people is uh, for lymphedema, the pose where you're lying on your back and you have your, both of your hands straight up in the air and both of your legs straight up in the air that encourages all that fluid that gets stuck because of all the lymph nodes that we've had removed. It encourages all of that fluid to flow towards your trunk where it can then be processed better. And something as simple as that can actually relieve some of the swelling and the pain from, from lymphedema. And as I'm, as she was explaining that my mom, who is a physical therapist is like, Oh yeah, that makes total sense from a scientific perspective, but just remembering that there are some very simple things that you can do in your body that may really relieve some of the symptoms of, um, in that particular situation, lymphedema, which I don't have. So I thought that was very sweet of her to research that, even though that wasn't necessarily something that was going to help me. But now every time I hear somebody with lymphedema, I'm like, oh, do this pose. That's super. I mean, it's just really simple and, and helpful. So I like the idea of just this, this holding space. They're not trying to fix they're not trying to say, you know, this is going to cure your cancer because we hear that all the time mm. uh, from random people. Um, but here's what might really help you as you are feeling X. Mm. Um, my massage therapist can tell if I've been to yoga 
during the week because he can feel it in my hips because the yoga helps the the tightness in my hips that much. He can feel it. Um, so just understanding what your body needs, uh, which has taken me years to get connected enough to my body to understand what my body needs. Just that right there it is extremely helpful. Thank you, Susanna, for coming today. Um, for anybody who's interested in learning more about what we talked about today, this Embrace Yoga's Roots um, that Susanna has written is amazing. And um, if you look at it on Amazon, you'll see it's a, a number one top bestseller in what are the categories again, Susanna? It's like <laughs> so, sociology, Hinduism, which is interesting, uh, <laughs> race and equity, those types of of categories. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to mention, because I know folks may feel like, but I'm not a yoga teacher. I'm not a yoga practitioner. I don't need a whole book. Um, If you don't want the whole book, you're more than welcome not to get it. There's also a free chapter available on my website that you'll probably link that I can pop it in the chat too. Um, And the reason I bring up the free chapter is it talks about trauma-informed practices that help re-regulate our nervous system like humming, like chanting. Um, So that chapter, even if the whole book isn't useful, it may be useful for you. Thank you both Susanna and Abigail for joining us in today's breast cancer conversation. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media and I'll link to all of our handles below. It would mean the absolute world to me if you could share this episode on social media. If we could reach just one more person, my heart would be filled. Your thumbs up, likes, hearts, comments, and shares are a great way to advocate and help elevate our voices and those of our guests. You can find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect via our website, survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. Until next time, keep on thriving.